course, have uh, begun looking at the story of the man who had trouble trusting and obeying. Um, he's not the only one who struggles with that. Uh, but it's more than the story of a man who struggled with trusting and obeying. It's really about the story of a God who is faithful, whose name is faithful. So let's keep that in mind as we turn to Jonah chapter 1. Um, I'm going to reread the first three verses, although we covered them last week. Uh, just uh, because they help give us the context of what we're going to be looking at uh, on the rest of this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the sea, sorry, in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will have a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Let's pray. Father, Uh, Jonah brings us uh, to a touchy subject, one that is full of danger because it can really touch those sensitive areas of our souls. We ask that you would deal gently with us, but that you would also deal firmly with us. Uh, Help us to not overreact, but rather to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit who brings repentance, trust, and faith. Help us to not hear words of condemnation, uh, for there are actually none to be heard, but sin and Satan often twist your words so that we can hear what's not necessarily there. And so we cry that you would have mercy on us as we listen. Illuminate the Scriptures for us that we might know truth and grace in Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen. It was March 10th, 1748. Not probably a date you remember. Not probably a date that has any particular significance to you. But if you were on the ship, the Greyhound, it had great significance to you. If you were on the the ship, the Greyhound, you had spent the last 18 months around the equator by Africa picking up cargo like beeswax and camwood. 
around the equator, moist air eating away at wood. But now, when it comes to March 10th, you're going home and you're almost home, and it's then that one of these powerful North Atlantic gales strikes your ship. The seas are a mess of turmoil as waves crash into the bow of your ship, and that wood that had been weakened by the months near Africa has now broken. And water, which is supposed to remain outside of the ship, has started to make its way inside the ship. I don't think any of us, I've not heard any way, anyway, if any of you have been in sort of one of those sorts of huge storms upon the sea, although, Jack, did you have any of those fun times in the Navy? Not a fun time. <laughs> okay. We don't have to go through the physical experience of being at sea and having a storm turn our ship upside down almost. We can often experience this in a metaphorical sense when life comes and throws us curves. Some of us have had some of these curves in recent weeks and they disorient us and frighten us and life seems like it's falling apart. Where do they fit within the providence of God is a question that sometimes arises. And so if, as we look at this text with Jonah, we, we have to look at Jonah first, but we also then must proceed to think of ourselves in the work of the gospel in our lives. And our big idea this morning is that God sends what I'm going to call redemptive wrath to recall us to His call. That God sends redemptive wrath to recall us to His call. And I want to start with that right off the bat right here, that the Father sends storms to stop our sin. We have, we remember that Jonah has received the call, arise, go to Nineveh, call out or cry out against that great city. And instead of hearing and responding positively to the call of God as a prophet of God, Jonah didn't go up, Jonah went down. He went down to Joppa. He paid a fare possibly even renting the whole ship, goes down into the ship. He goes down then into the inner part of the ship. And there's this sense of Jonah is continually descending. He is moving closer from the storyteller's point of view towards death as we shall see. Jonah has been unfaithful to God's command, to God's call. But how would Yahweh, who is faithful, respond to the unfaithfulness of His prophet? We see right here, verse 4, Jonah goes down, but the Lord hurled a great wind. Think about that for a moment. Picture in your mind a great pitcher in baseball hurling a fastball, or a great quarterback like, I'm not even going to say his name, hurling <laughs> that football. 
The great quarterback or pitcher has control over where that goes and God is not to be seen as someone having a temper tantrum who's just randomly tossing wind places, but that He sends it to a particular place for a particular reason. He is in control of the wind. And He sends or hurls this great wind that He has control over. We see in in places like Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We see in the psalm that we read during our, for a call of worship that He speaks to the waters and they form a heap. He's able to gather them up. Such is the power of the Lord. He is the Maker of heaven and earth. And so He controls the wind and the seas at all times. We see the most dramatic Instance of this in the Red Sea incident as the people of Israel are fleeing from the Egyptian army and they don't have anywhere to go and God sends a wind to separate the seas. And now, it might be easy for people to say that that is uh, you know, great storytelling, not, not a whole lot of truth right there. But I'll remind you of some of those pictures we saw as a result of Hurricane Irma in Tampa Bay I've been to Tampa Bay, deep water, and yet the picture is the, the winds were so strong that they pushed the, the water out of Tampa Bay. God can do that kind of stuff. And God does that kind of stuff. And so here we see that Jonah is running away and God sends this great wind and there was a great storm. It's the same word that we find, great wind. Gadol. I don't want to drop the Hebrew. I just want to, but I'm frustrated by the, the fact that they, they kind of miss the parallelism. Gah! It drives me crazy when they do that, when they translate. The parallelism is right there for us to see. God is a great storyteller and sometimes we get in the way. So God hurls the great wind and it stirs up the great storm or gale. This is not simply coincidental. When He speaks of the ship, He personifies it with this strange notion to us that the ship threatened to break up. It's like, hey, any moment now I'm going to break up. This is not good. And so we see that this is an incredibly dangerous storm, just like the storm that hit the greyhound. The storm that began to break its boards to pieces so that the water began to come inside. Why did God send this dangerous storm upon this sea, the Mediterranean, at this time. The storm is sent in order to hinder the disobedience of Jonah. Everything that Jonah was counting on to get him away from the call of God is now being used against Jonah so that he will not be able to do that. The boat... The boat helps him float, 
and the wind is intended to push the, to, you know, help the boat to sail across the Mediterranean to wherever Tarshish was. Okay? Now all of that, the wind, the waves, the boat itself are all conspiring, so to speak, with the Lord to prevent Jonah from getting to Tarshish. He may want to go, but he ain't going to get there because God has sent the wind. Why has he done this? God, as Mike mentioned, is a holy and just God. And so he has, as I said, redemptive wrath when his children disobey. And what I mean by that idea of redemptive wrath is that God is not trying to destroy Jonah. He's not trying to destroy these men that are with Jonah. And there may have been women there. We don't know. He's not trying to destroy, but he's trying to bring repentance. And that's what I mean by redemptive wrath. A wrath that is sent in order to accomplish the purpose of redemption or repentance so that God's purposes are fulfilled. It's similar to a parent. Sometimes we send our redemptive wrath upon our children. We discipline them. Right? It's to, to realign them, to get them back in line with the purposes. It, it has a redemptive purpose. Not, we're not trying to destroy our children. If you are, then something's wrong with you. Okay? But children, it may seem your parents are against you at certain moments, children, but they're not. They're for you, and they're acting in a way that has been prompted by your sin and disobedience so that you can be called to repentance and restoration. Parents don't generally like doing this. But do it, we must. It is a reflection of God as our Father who disciplines us as His children for our good. And so this storm is a example of God's discipline upon Jonah for his disobedience. And we must remember, as the author of Hebrews tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because he is not a permissive, mushy-gushy kind of father to us. One of the things my mother told me at one point was that, I guess, the, their nickname for my father was the Marshmallow because he didn't like to bring discipline to us children. I'm not sure my experience spares that out, but uh, according to my mother, that was the case. Okay? Um, we, we might, what we have to recognize here is that God didn't offer this to Jonah, and then Jonah said, no, not me, I don't want to sign up for this task, and God just decided to go find another guy. It was Jonah. It was a person-specific call, and Jonah cannot, was not free to be disobedient to that. 
but that God is going to bring out the obedience of Jonah to that call that he had received. God wasn't just going to move on to the next available person and see who fits. Rather, he is going to make Jonah suitable for this calling that he has received. In other words, he doesn't give up on Jonah. Now, you might look at the storm and go, this is not good for Jonah, but I say to you, it is great news for Jonah. Because if God does not come to redeem Jonah, he's lost. But the fact that God does not give up on Jonah should give us great hope because we too are prone to wander. We too are prone to leave the God we love. We too are prone towards disobedience. And He doesn't give up on us. So this is profoundly good news. He is a God who is faithful even though we sometimes, more often than we wish, are unfaithful. When we run, God does not give up on us, but He sends this redemptive wrath to reclaim us and to transform us. And so our unfaithfulness is not the final word, but that God faithfully works to produce obedience in His children. And so we see that the Father sends storms to stop our sin. But we must also see that false gods offer false hopes. That's another thing that's going on here is that false gods offer false hopes. You see, Jonah's not the only one who's affected by the winds and the waves as they toss this little ship. He didn't buy the ship and sail it himself. This is not a one-person sail ship caught in the middle of a perfect storm, but this is a cargo ship with a crew. And so this storm affects everyone else who's on the ship. And I doubt it was a storm that was rather small in size and only encompassed this one ship, but probably encompassed a number of ships that were on the Mediterranean and that general region. There were many people who were affected by this. The consequences of Jonah's sin spread far and wide. We are prone to deceive ourselves that our sin only affects us. But we see here another glaring example of how misery spreads and how these people are about to be caught in this this turmoil, not because of something they have done directly, but because of something this one guy named Jonah, the prophet of God, did. The misery of sin spreads far and wide. I, I like to think of it in terms of the, um, the movie Runaway Bride. And it talks about her wake. The wake of a ship dis, displaces other ships. And if it's a big, big ship, it, it makes life miserable for the tiny ships. And, and uh, her character, this woman who kept 
running away from marriage, leaving men at the altar, had created this chaos within this community by her actions. She did not act in isolation, and neither do we. So we see here that the mariners are declared to be afraid. You see, this is not a storm to be taken lightly, but this is one that has scared the dickens, so to speak, out of these experienced sailors. Okay, They're so frightened that we first see two things that happen, and I'm going to deal with them in reverse order. The first thing, they're throwing the cargo out. Okay? What's the cargo? That's their profit. That's the money that was to be made on this journey. That's the whole point of being on the sea was to carry this cargo from point A to point B and make lots of money. And now they're saying, I want to live more than I want the money. Out goes the cargo. It's similar to what we see in Acts 27 when Paul is on the way to Rome uh, in chains and they're there they meet a storm and there we see that they were violently storm tossed and the sailors began the next day to jettison the cargo trying to make the ship lighter we see some of that in in the greyhound as they got rid of a lot of things but thankfully for them they didn't get rid of the beeswax and the camwood and we'll eventually get there the second thing they did is that each cried out to his god People of that time and place often had three gods. There was the national god. Then there was sort of the family god, the one that your particular family worshipped. Okay? And then there was your personal god, the one that you worshipped, usually in addition to the other two gods. This is what happens with uh, pluralism. This is what happens with polytheism. You've got to hedge your bets, okay? Uh, because one god does not control everything in their worldview. Therefore, it's good to have a couple of gods that you're paying some attention to. And maybe one of those gods is going to help you out in the midst of a storm like this. We shouldn't be too harsh toward them in the sense that we see this as a common thing even today. Since this is, uh, we'll call it Reformation Month, not just the day. We, we'll, we'll, it's the 500th anniversary. We'll have a whole month of this fun. And so, unfortunately, one of the things that Roman Catholicism had become in the day of Luther, and something that it still has today, is the calling on of the saints. Because they see Jesus as this terrible judge. And so they need these saints to intercede with Jesus for them. And so they call on Mary and they call on some saint. You've heard probably most often of St. Christopher, who's supposedly the patron saint of lost causes and policemen and just about any other thing you can imagine. And so that's what it was like for these guys. They're calling on these different gods that they had hoping that one of them would be able to, to rescue them. They call on these false gods because they had false hopes of salvation, of deliverance. And we are no different. 
though we may be Protestants and don't call on St. Francis and St. Joe and all of that kind of stuff, we still have national gods and family gods, personal gods, idols that we serve that we can call on in times of trouble. We're Americans, by golly. We worship success. We worship security. I'm not sure what gods your family worships. Maybe it's being perfect. Uh, Maybe it's being beautiful. Maybe it's being smart. But there's something that you rely on to get through life. And then there's your own personal god. The idol that you bow down to, the thing that's most important to you, and for me it's peace and quiet and I don't have any. (laughs) Because it's a false god false hopes. Don't have four children and expect peace and quiet. (laughs) God laughs at me every time. I want peace and quiet. But people call on these false gods in the false hope of deliverance. I remember one time I was home alone with my father. I was upstairs in my room. He was downstairs. And then I heard a crash. And he called out, not to me, not to God, but to my mother, who was nowhere to be found. He had gone to fix something and stood on a chair and fell off the chair. Fortunately, he was fine, but he was relying upon the wrong thing to come to his aid. We see that when they find Jonah, as they're they're in the cargo hold and they're getting stuff and they're tossing things out, they come across Jonah and the helmsman or the captain says to him, Arise! Call out to your God. And again, we find one of those places where I go, Oh, why did they do that? Because it's the same phrase that we find in verse 1. Arise and cry out or call out against Nineveh. The providential words, which are different from the ones where it says, Call call upon their gods. Okay, It's different from that, which you would expect the same word, but it's the one in verse 1 instead. It is that providentially God puts these words into the mouth of the helmsman to remind Jonah of his call and that he's supposed to be some, going somewhere else, not Tarshish. It's meant to help further this repentance process along and these words fall on deaf ears with regard to Jonah. They're meant to awaken him to his mission, not just awaken him from his sleep, as we'll see in a few moments. But these men wanted to just add his God to the list of gods that they're calling upon, not realizing that his God is the one who made the sea and the earth and everything that is in them. The storm rages precisely because Jonah would not arise and call out. He is resisting the redemptive wrath of God in this moment. The soldiers, not soldiers, the sailors continue to think about this thing and they they realize that if there is a God who has sent this storm, that maybe they should find out who was to blame. 
Recently, we switched from Dish back to Comcast. And I lamented this week because one of the movies that I had recorded on the Dish was Heart of the Sea. And I wanted to go back and get the quotes (laughs) from Heart of the Sea. There's this one portion of the film where they have encountered the whale and the whale has destroyed their ship and they were the the few remaining crew members who ended up in these boats and they came across this deserted island and uh, none of them was named Gilligan <laughs> but the 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 captain of the ship and the and the first mate are i mean they're they're struck by thirst and and dehydration and sunburn and they're a mess and they're starving and one of them asks, what did we do to offend God so greatly that He has brought this upon us? Because all men are children of wrath, they all have that sneaking suspicion that when disaster comes upon them, that it is because of some particular sin that they have committed. And so these men want to find the guilty party Jonah does not volunteer. It's me, guys! And so they decide to do what people in their day often did, and that was to cast lots. It's like rolling dice. And it's basically a yes or no answer, and so you kind of go through the line of people. Is it Fred? No. We see this when, after the defeat at Ai, Joshua in uh, Joshua 7 seeks to find out whose sin had brought this defeat upon Israel, and the lot came rightly to Achan's family. We see this in Acts chapter 1 when they decide they must uh, replace Judas, the, the uh, betrayer, and the lot falls to Matthias. We still see it in the Reformed Church in America. It's one of the ways they can choose elders. Got a bunch of names up there and they cast a lot to see who's going to be an elder. I don't recommend that method. I'm not sure why. But we see that uh, the lot is cast in the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. The one who controls the winds that controls the storms upon the sea uh, is also in control of the things that we think to be the smallest things, the casting of the die. So, God reveals that it's Jonah. The very thing Jonah probably feared would happen probably watching them roll person after person, no, going, oh boy, should I just get this over with? God's going to reveal it's me. But He doesn't. God does. Jonah doesn't. Jonah is the guilty party, but as I kind of alluded to, they're all guilty men and so this storm is, is not really just for him. But this storm gives all of them an opportunity to repent. It's not just merely about the repentance of Jonah, but as we're going to see later on, 
It's also about the repentance of Gentiles in general and these men in particular. That God is doing something greater than just restoring His wayward prophet. But God is restoring Gentiles to Himself. And so God's redemptive wrath reveals our false gods and their false hopes as useless or vain. Which leads us to the last thing I want us to consider this morning, and that is that Christ is the only hope we have to still the storm. That Christ indeed is the only hope to still the storm. You see, the storm rages as experienced men and boat are both kind of coming apart at the seams. Uh, their gods have not delivered them at all. Jonah refuses to call out to God who alone can stop it. You see, hard hearts usually end up taking other people with them. But let's, let's hit the rewind button for a moment on this story. Where did they find Jonah and how did they find him? They found him in the cargo area because he had lain down and was fast asleep. Remember, he's not a sailor. He's just a passenger. And so he found a place to uh, get some rest while the men were doing the real work. Jonah is resting in his disobedience. Let's think of the greyhound for a moment. They had a passenger too. There was a man that they picked up when they were in Africa. A man who had been enslaved for a couple of years and tortured. A man who had not gotten along with any sea captain he had ever met up to this point and including this point. That man was awakened when the water was by his bed. And that man was John Newton. John Newton, who at this point in his life was still a blasphemer, was still one who hated God and spoke often about it. The storm that came upon the greyhound would be instrumental in the repentance of John Newton. But I'll finish that story next week. Jonah is one step from death and seemingly wants to die rather than obey God. Although it was written after his time, this principle was probably known to Jonah because God said to Ezekiel that if I say to the wicked or wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. And so essentially what that means is, Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh means that when God brings judgment upon Nineveh, the blood of the Ninevites will be on Jonah's hands. Jonah will be as good as dead. And he's basically consigned himself to that fate. He seems to be okay with that fate at this point in time. So let's go back to our remote control. Instead of reverse, let's do fast forward. Let's go fast forward to the Gospels. For we find this story in Mark and Matthew and in Luke. Jesus in a boat. 
a boat that is being swamped by the waters of a storm, a boat that, or sorry, a storm that has these, uh, most of whom were experienced sailors upon the sea, that the, the, the Sea of Galilee, had them quaking in their boots in fear. And Jesus is asleep. Now, unlike Jonah, he's not resting in his disobedience or from being tired from his disobedience, but Jesus is resting content in the fulfillment of his mission. He is exactly where he belongs, doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And like Jonah, Jesus is awakened by the men who are in fear for their lives. We see Jonah who would rather die than obey, but we see Jesus who was willing to die as His obedience. We see Jesus who was willing to lay down His life to save people who weren't worth saving. Jonah would rather die to avoid those people being saved. Quite the contrast. Jonah would go to the grave in disobedience, but Jesus went to the grave in obedience on a rescue mission to receive the wrath of God for us. We see Jonah is at the mercy of the storm. There's nothing seemingly that he can do to stop it, but Jesus speaks. And so the fear of the men turns from the storm to Jesus. Who is this man that we have been with all these days? The wind obeys. That'll put the fear of God in you. (laughs) He is the one the only one who can rescue us from the sin that brings the storms because He is the sin-bearer, the curse-bearer. Think about that. That Jesus does not leave us in the storm by our own to figure it out. But Jesus comes into the storm. He doesn't wait till it's over and send supplies on a plane or a boat. Jesus comes into the storm to rescue His people. To calm their fears. To restore them to true life. To end their sinning. What a great Savior. What a great Savior we have. And so storms have raged and ruined ships throughout human history. We can sometimes write them off as coincidental. Too bad for those guys. But these storms are not coincidental. The ruination of the Greyhound would change John Newton and through him would change the face of England forever. This storm that we find here in Jonah 
is meant to bring stubborn Jonah, unfaithful Jonah, and by him unfaithful Israel back to a faithful God and His mission. But as we see, some of us can be very stubborn. We are called to trust in the good intentions of God and to make haste to return to Him in the midst of life's storms, whether it's from your sin that brought them or someone else's. Make use of those storms to cry out to Him. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty and merciful God, that we here, disquieted in the midst of so many tossings, that we may yet learn with tranquil minds to rest on Your grace and promise, by which You testify that You will never leave us nor forsake us, Rather, You will always be near us. And not wait until a strong hand You draw us to Yourself, but that we may be attentive to Your providence. May we know that our life not only depends on a thread, but also vanishes like the smoke, unless You protect it, so that we may rest completely on Your power. And may we also, while in a cheerful and quiet state, call on You, relying on Your protection that we may live in safety. And at the same time, be careful lest apathy, which draws our minds and thought from meditating on the divine life, should creep over us. But that we may earnestly seek You morning and evening, that we may continue to pursue that heavenly kingdom which Christ has obtained for us by His own blood. Amen.